Dave, how are you doing? <clears throat> hey, David, just read this letter to the Wisconsin School District. Got to tell you, super job, my man. Hey, it's so good. I hope you don't mind. I made a copy um, of it, and I will uh, be happy to redact any names, etc. But just such a good example for us to work from how to correct for the amazing stuff. Really uh, proud to be working with you. Really, really great professional. And uh, just want to let you know that. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Each week, as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response, follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Perodin from down here in the North Star Recording Studio. And this is episode 162 of The Safety Doc. It is a brisk 61 degrees down here today, but I do have the fireplace going in the background. Today's show, top 10 questions about working at the School for the Blind. I had the privilege of working as an administrator at the School for the Blind in Wisconsin at the end of my administrative career. And I had a lot of misconceptions about what that job was going to be like. And even though I had worked in districts for more than 20 years, I knew little about our state school that provided educational and other services for students who are blind and visually impaired. So I learned a lot in a short amount of time. And I wanna share that today. I was frequently asked questions about what it was like to work at a school for blind students. And I compiled my top 10 list for you, and I'm going to go through those today. But before I do, please help out this channel by subscribing and also clicking that notification bell. Uh, this channel is growing, and I certainly appreciate your watch hours. We have a number of episodes out there presented in video, audio, and then also a blog post. So thank you so much. And looking for the most honest book ever written about the $3 billion school safety, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America. This book is available at places that sell books, right? So go in and check it out. This one does come in hard copy and ebook. My upcoming book, The Velocity of Information, is now available for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Again, the velocity of information. So top 10 questions about working at a school for the blind. Question number one, do you have to learn Braille? That's a great question. And I fully anticipated when I started that I would need to learn Braille. And that was a point of apprehension for me. Would I be able to learn Braille? kind of as a, an additional language, right? Later in life, I was 
not sure what the expectations would be. And the answer is kind of. I didn't need to learn Braille at a tactile level, but I did need to learn to read the Braille alphabet. And if I was visually presented something that was written in Braille without the contractions, I could typically work my way through it and, and read it. So the answer is, there is an expectation that you'll be able to read uh, basic visual Braille. Again, if, if you are working there and you have a uh, visual ability to do that, but there is not a responsibility to learn tactile Braille. So when I learned Braille, I was assigned a student who was very proficient in Braille. And this student uh, taught me the initial Braille alphabet that there are six letters uh, or, or six dots. So in a Braille cell. And I also practice a lot on my, my own of decoding. I was decoding Braille worksheets and I started to pick it up pretty rapidly. So the student would listen for me in the hallway. And if she heard my voice, she would say, hey, Dr. P, what is two dots over four empty spaces? And I'd have to know that on the spot. So, um, but it took me maybe about a month to learn basic um, alphabet from a visual standpoint. And then I just continued to practice. Is it something I needed to use a lot? No, uh, most of the information was presented in text and then also in Braille. So it wasn't a skill that I needed to be very fluent in. Um, and actually it wasn't very difficult to learn the visual Braille. Tactile Braille is completely different and Braille with contractions. And I had uh, very good teachers. So um, I also have an app on my phone called Braille Helper. And I would go through that app. It would present uh, words, and then you'd have to match the corresponding six-dot cell uh, to the letters in those words. And actually, that worked really well to practice on this Braille Helper app. The second question I receive is, is it a sad place to work? Um, thinking about you know, students who are right, visually impaired, oftentimes have um, other uh, comorbid conditions uh, such as autism or um, physical needs. And just the fact of right, not having, um, not being able to describe visually um, what it's like to see, to see a tree, right? To see leaves, um, the sun, a movie, and all of those things. So coming into the position, I anticipated that there would be kind of this, this, this sadness, right? That there would be this um, longing for um, what, I guess, a sighted individual would have. And actually, that wasn't the case at all. Um, it is a very upbeat uh, place. There's a lot of energy going on in a positive way, a very kind of close-knit uh, family. And I, I was, again, my expectation coming into that didn't match the reality. So no, it, it wasn't a sad place to work, not at all. There's also little turnover in staff and little turnover in students. So students would attend the school typically year after year, and at some point um, integrate back into their home districts. But 
we had little turnover. It wasn't a very big student population either. Believe it or not, all of our students, um, including students who just attended for the day, that was about 70 students, seven zeros. So yeah, not a lot of students. So you got to know the students well. There was a high staff to student ratio, little turnover in staff. So again, it contributed to this family type environment. Um, also, students were very busy. Uh, they would be out in the community. That was a big part of the school. Having students go into the community in vivo. Uh, there were bus routes and one of the bus stops was right in front of the school. So students would practice their bus routes and what's called orientation and mobility and other activities, uh, including recreation, going bowling, going to parks, going to work, right? All in the community. So it was a very uh, busy time. And again, I think that contributed to this, this high, um, just this, this high positive energy that was in the school. So how about sports? Um, yeah, there, there are sports teams. And one of the most popular is goalball. So I have a picture I'm going to put up on the screen. And this is when it was staff versus students in goalball. And it's, it's me, um, my friend Dave, and then also my friend Tim. And Dave was completely visually impaired or blind. So we have a distinction. Some students visually impaired, so they have some vision. It might be that they can... Um, see the distinctions in light to actually having pretty good acuity uh, to being blind. So Dave in the middle here um, was blind and he was an instructor at the school. And Tim was a math instructor. Both are still there. I just got an email from them this morning. Um, so yeah, both are, both are still there. And we participated in faculty versus students for goalball. Uh, you can Google goalball but imagine um, everybody wears a blackout um, mask over, over their, their eyes and then really uh, pretty heavy uh, padded gear. And there is a, a heavier ball, which is about the size of a playground ball, but it's more dense and it has a bell inside. And it's basically thrown from one side of a gym to another and some rules that it can only bounce so many times and what out of bounds is and you have three players on each side. So in the center and then two on the wings. So it's fascinating. Go into Google, type in goal ball, and you'll be able to see some of these games. So um, yes, and of course the, uh, the students uh, would compete with other schools. So they would travel to Indiana and Texas and Missouri and Ohio, and we would also host these events at our school. The school would host students from other states and it would be a multi-day event. And usually there would be a social at night. So there was a lot going on with these competitions. Also track and wrestling. And all students participated for the most part in 4-H. At one time, not when I was there, but before I was there, the school had its own radio station. The fourth question, do the students live at the school. Some of them do, and it actually depends upon where that student lives. So the school for the blind in Wisconsin is near the bottom of the state. So if a student lived in the northern part of the state or 
300 miles away, typically that student would be flown in, right? They would fly in and to the airport, which was close to the school for the blind, fly in on Sunday, leave on Friday, uh, or else they would arrive and depart by bus or private transport. Um, so yeah, about uh, three-fourths of the students stayed on campus. So they lived there. Uh, they had they had dorms. Um, so yeah, it was pretty, um, pretty close to what you'd think of as a college experience. And how young could a student be where they would stay there the whole week? Just think about that. And it would be about age 13 where they would consider having a student attend all week. That might sound uh, like it's very young and that that would be very intimidating and overwhelming for a student. But by that time, they've already had experience with the school and they typically want to stay there. That's where their friends are. Uh, there's a there's a pool. <laughs> very, um, It's very warm. It's very comfortable. So it, it's a pool. There's a theater. Everything is connected on this campus. Um, there's a gym with a walking track above it. And again, you know, the students, uh, their friends are there. They're getting to do community activities. They like their teachers. So um, it's often where students want to stay at campus. But typically, it's about 13 years old, right around there when the campus and, and the, the dorm parents will make that decision of giving a, t a student a trial in the dorms. So actually, some of the older students live temporarily in a building next to the school, a converted house. And in that location, then they're doing everything from kind of their shopping to figuring out what they're going to have on TV or the radio that night. Um, so responsible for cleaning the place up. Uh, but yeah, that's also part of the campus. So some of the students come in daily. So if it's usually about a 90 minute drive or less, the district will transport that student into the school. There are a few hybrid situations too. In those cases, a student might attend the school for the blind in the morning and might attend the local school district in the afternoon or a district that's close by, maybe that they uh, regularly would attend if they weren't attending the school for the blind. So that is also part of a student's schedule. So you can see that there's a lot of variety. Yes, students stay there. They stay in the dorms. Uh, they have dorm parents. So um, you can kind of think about a, a resident assistant in college. But of course, these are adults who are serving in the role of, of uh, parent while that student is at the school. So, yep, there's a there's a lights out for, for bedtime. There's a lot of routine, but... Um, there are recreation halls in the in the dorms, and again, students have uh, schedules to participate in sports or activities or 4-H or things like that. Uh, so yeah, it is students actually live there, which was something I didn't know. And when I was a school administrator, sp uh, specifically with special education, I would be apprehensive at meetings when we would be talking about a student with a visual impairment and a potential placement at the School for the Blind because I thought, oh my goodness, the student is gonna be away from their parents for you know the whole week and then they're gonna 
get to be home a couple days and have to leave again. This is going to be very difficult for them to adjust. And I didn't have any idea really what was happening at the facility. And once I once I got down there and was able to share back with other administrators and said, hey, come come over here and check this place out. Question number five. Question number five. <laughs> do the older students date? So yes, yeah, they do. So uh, they'll be dating other students at the school or other students in the neighboring schools, uh, pretty similar to just regular high school students dating. Now, here was something that it took me a while to get used to this. Students would ask for help setting up their dating apps. And of course, that was something um, I didn't feel comfortable in doing, but we're talking about adult students, like 18 years old and, and you know, going through and navigating. Because these apps, one of the things was the, the various dating apps weren't made for people with visual impairments. So they needed someone to input, for example, um, you know, what their interests were. Like, oh, there's a visual menu that comes up and it's not made for voiceover, which is a feature on phones and computers, which will read text on screen. It didn't work with all of these. So I had to say, um, I need, you know, when you go home on, on the weekend or, you know, have a, have a parent or an adult friend uh, help you out with that. <laughs> and also one time a student said, hey, I have um, some potential uh, matches here on my, my dating app. <laughs> Would you mind looking at them? and then reading their information and telling me what you think. <laughs> and I said, well, I appreciate the trust, and, but I can't, I can't do that. Um, so, but those are, those are kind of interesting like scenarios and questions that get posed uh, to you as a staff member uh, sometimes. So, um, but yes, I, I remember that very uh, distinctly. <laughs> And I had to laugh. And the student had a, a sense of humor um, about it, too. So number six, are all of the students blind? So this is something, you know, you would you would think, right? So I thought that students um, that attended the school had were completely blind. And what I found out is that wasn't true a number of students had some vision and some students actually had uh, very good vision in daylight to the point where they were able to obtain their driver's license for the day. So we had two students when I was there who obtained a day permit. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. 
Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Please subscribe to this channel. Please hit the notification bell and post questions down below in comments. What would you expect if you were to take a job at a school for the blind? What would be something you would anticipate that would be there or wouldn't be there? Um, what might be your apprehensions or what might bring excitement to taking on that role? Or do you know anybody who's worked at a school for the blind or worked with students who are blind or adults who are blind or visually impaired? Please share those experience, experiences down below in the comments. I do respond to comments and I'm very interested to hear about your experiences because again, mine um, were significantly uh, mismatched to what I had anticipated. So do students, we talked about were students uh, necessarily blind? They were blind or visually impaired to different levels. And sometimes students um, were sighted until there was a specific event that happened that made them lose their sight. And others, it was more of a gradual uh, neurological condition where students were losing their sight. So we had students of uh, kind of all different levels, students who had, had been sighted up until a certain age. We had one student, and I'll, I'll talk about that student in a little bit, um, had a heart attack while he was running on his school's track as a middle schooler. And as a result of um, the heart attack, had lost some of his vision. So that would be this rapid onset. And number seven, do students get into trouble? Well, actually, yes. <laughs> Just because a student is attending a residential facility, a school for the blind, which taught um, traditional academics in addition taught braille and taught orientation and mobility, which is how to use a cane or um, other equipment to navigate around. Now, one of the things you would think that there would be a high number of um, service dogs at the School for the Blind. And when I was there, there were no service dogs at the School for the Blind. At that point, students were being taught how to navigate using a cane. So we're talking about the students get in trouble. Yeah, there were fewer incidents though, compared to when I was working in traditional K-12 public school. Um, significantly fewer. And other staff who were there, who had worked in traditional schools had observed the same thing. Just saying it was very rare for a significant discipline event which would require administration for example, um, there was at times things you would have in other schools, bullying. I remember a, a student who brought tobacco <laughs> with them. So that was uh, something that traveled from the student's home to the school. So, uh, but uh, generally it was very seldom to have uh, these discipline or safety situations happen at school. So with that, you might be asking, because I was, right? I came in with a background in school safety, and I'm 
That was one of my roles when I was at the school, was working to make sure staff and students were safe. So what does school safety, how is that adapted, right, for visually impaired staff and students? Um, so, well, the first thing is it's a non-negotiable. Everybody participates in instruction and everybody participates in the drills. Uh, tornado drills, intruder drills, fire drills, you name it, we did it. And when you practice with students, especially students who are visually impaired, you need to be very overt in what you're saying. This is why we're doing this. This is what is happening. So you're describing the environment, the situation. And actually, that's really great to use in all settings with all students. So that was a, a skill that I think generalizes extremely well. But to say, this is, we're going to be going down into the basement right now, right? And when we're down, because there is a, a tornado drill. So when we're down there, we'll do a count to make sure everybody is there. Um, we'll let you know the time. And, you know, if it, we think it'll take two more minutes, four more minutes, and then, of course, keep you apprised of what is happening. And when the drill is done, because that was an area the students typically didn't go very often. Uh, with fire drills, making sure that students knew where the perimeters were to the school, that all the sidewalks, all the concrete around the school, which they, they knew because they practiced with orientation mobility, entering and exiting the building and, and knowing where these perimeter um, sidewalks and concrete pads were. So also a lot of social stories. Students were visually impaired, but students sometimes have autism or a physical disability or something else. And it was important to prepare that student in different parts of the building. Again, this was a huge complex, so it could be down by the pool. What if there's a fire, um, fire alarm activates when you're down by the pool or in the theater or in the lunchroom or in the dorm or at night in the dorm? in a classroom and so on. So we practiced at different times and in different locations. And then did these re rehearsals also. It wouldn't be a formal drill for everybody, but it might be for one student to go and to practice in some different areas. Okay, here's where we're at. Um, now, beep, beep, beep. Okay, that's a fire alarm. What would we do? And then practice exiting the building and and staying calm and staying focused during that time. So that worked remarkably well. Um, one of the things though that didn't work well were safety apps for phones. So that's pretty common in a lot of schools today. They have different apps and the thought is that students will be notified or they can report something in, in, into this app system. So again, those are very common, but they didn't work at the School for the Blind because when the app vendors would come in and we would have students, they would give the phones to the students that would have the apps on them and, and say, okay, like here's how to use this app to report a threat or to get information if the school is in a lockdown or something like that because of an intruder situation. And students would not, if they didn't have sight, they wouldn't be able to access. And one time a vendor actually took 
an app from a student and said, well, wait a second. Okay, I know what, what's going on here. I'm just going to make the text larger. <laughs> so went in, did whatever, handed it back to students, said, there it is, like it's fixed. And the student uh, said, well, no, because I'm blind, I can't see this. So it doesn't have overlay on it. It's not telling me what's happening. There's not a voice option. So this wasn't beneficial. So the school didn't purchase that app, actually didn't purchase um, any of these apps because they just weren't designed for staff or students uh, with visual loss, which is a good point, right? Because it's universal design for learning and just universal design overall. Um, these things, you know, modern safety equipment, computers, apps, devices, whatever it is, needs to be accessible to students who are visually impaired, um, students who have hearing loss. So I, again, I worked at the school for the blind and about 30 minutes away was the school for the deaf. So, which would be obviously, you know, different ways that you would have notifications. Um, you know, you wouldn't have auditory notifications if there was um, a fire alarm, for example, you'd have to have visual and haptic or vibration. So that was something that stood out to me is, hey, like this is modern time, right? Um, why are people choosing to develop these safety things and not include students with disabilities, people with disabilities in their trials? Because they would certainly identify right away, you can't use this with a student who is blind the way that it is. We have to modify it. We'd have to build in this voiceover. So that was something that was uh, that was frustrating with safety, but it was everybody participated. And we once had a two alarm fire a few minutes into lunch on a Friday. And Friday's the day where after lunch, students pack up and they go home. So I wanna talk about a scenario you would never run in a school setting, have a fire drill during lunch on a Friday. But actually this was authentic. It was a dryer, an industrial dryer located underneath where the kitchen area was and uh, the dryer had malfunctioned and started on fire. It was contained, but there was a lot of smoke coming into the building. Because students had practiced in staff, they knew how to get out of the building. They knew to stay calm. They knew that once they got to their perimeter areas, people would be telling them what was going on. And that is exactly what happened. It was extremely effective and it was, again, a non-negotiable that everybody's instructed in safety and everybody participates in safety activities. Now, what we did after that is, it was a Friday. So on Monday, we had focus groups. So we would get four students and maybe one or two staff members together and spend 40 minutes with two or three groups and say, let's go back to Friday. So as far as communication, um, Let's talk about that. Was there a point when you, you know you didn't know what was happening or could there be more information or, or what worked well, what didn't work well? Tell us how you got out. So we had a set of questions because we wanted to also examine, boy, this worked really, really well. And students said, you know, we participated in this. We knew where the perimeter was. People were, were we recognized the voices, right, were, were talking to us. And there was another question though that, that kind of surfaced. And, and this was, was there any, any point when we could have done something 
different that would have that would have helped you? And the students said, yes, when we were out on the sidewalks and there was the second alarm and, you know, the 80,000 pound fire engines come down and the whole road in the sidewalk rumble, they said, well, when that happened, then we were more concerned with the building. Like everybody, we knew everybody was out and they were staff were talking, everybody's safe. We just need to wait here. You know, the buses and transportation that usually arrive at the school are going to arrive a block away and we'll take care of you. Now, some students be like, I'm not sure I'm going to get my stuff because it was in the dorms. But all of that was was kind of addressed. But the question was, um, is is more going on? You know, is is this fire increasing and and all of you know what what does that mean for yeah the school and for my possessions and the dorm and um, and so we had to say well that's a great point we never thought about it at the time to we kept you a pro, everybody was keeping a prize through the two way radios uh, for the first maybe twenty minutes and then there was there was a lot of waiting from the students and we needed to keep doing the updates of saying here's what's happening now. And the reason the second alarm was called was to have more firefighters there and they needed to ventilate the building and get the smoke out of that part of the building and also check the ceiling and some of those. It wasn't because the fire was getting worse. The fire department did a great job of putting the fire out. And within about an hour, um, staff were able to come back into the building, retrieve um, the students' personal belongings. And the thing is, students already had their personal belongings packed. Uh, they have them packed the night before and they're in their, their dorms. So it's usually just grabbing their duffel bags and things like that and bringing those things out for students um, and making sure that students had lunch. So that was all, you know, coordinated through through uh, food service. And so everything went well. But again, I was asking students afterwards, what could we and staff? Uh, was there a point when you weren't sure what was going on? And they're like, yep. Number nine, number nine, who wouldn't want to work there? Who, would, who wouldn't want to work at the School for the Blind? I'll tell you, it's not for everyone. And here's what I found out. The biggest challenge to most new employees is the fact that the students' schedules are actually very fluid. From day to day, their schedules change. And... That's largely due to orientation mobility. So orientation mobility is teaching students, for example, how to navigate um, with, a, with a cane or if they're in a wheelchair and also visually impaired, how to navigate, how to use bus routes, how to get yourself around town, buildings, all of that. So there were a few of those instructors and there's a big shortage throughout the country and that's one of the reasons when students would come to the school, um, they might come to the school because there wasn't an orientation and mobility instructor anywhere close to their home district. But orientation and mobility and Braille courses were the first things that were put into a student's schedule. And there were only so many staff to do that. And sometimes that got changed based upon the weather, uh, based upon if there was a community um, outing that was scheduled so students could practice their orientation mobility in the community. So uh, imagine coming in and you realize, oh my goodness, this student is gone today because of 
you know, this, this activity and you had something planned and yeah, now how do you make that up? And so that was something for some people. It was, if you're very strict with a schedule, this probably wasn't the job for you. Um, but I also found that uh, I was able to adjust as, again, people that I worked with were able to adjust very well to this fluid schedule. Again, there's this high number of trips into the community so students can practice in vivo their orientation and mobility skills. Also, if you have a student who travels to the school on Sunday, lives in the dorm during the week, and then goes home on Friday, if that student is ill, they might miss an entire week of school. So that also took some getting used to is you might have a student, and this was before the time of, of the pandemic, but a student could be out a couple of weeks during the year just because they were, were ill, and it then didn't make sense to do that flight in, for example, on a Wednesday if they're just going to leave again on a Friday. So that was something that was different. And as all students have disabilities, right, um, all students at the School for the Blind have to be identified with a visual impairment to be eligible to receive services there. So there's this, this moral dilemma that some people had of saying, this seems like it's not an inclusive setting. Every student here has a disability. They're not with peers who don't have disabilities. And so the question would be, you know, is that, is this a good structure in this day and age? You know, when the school was built back, I believe in the 1850s, students would come in and, and live an entire semester at the school. There was a farm attached to the school. Uh, there was fishing down at a river in back of the school. All of that was, was just happening right there. It was something that absolutely these students couldn't receive in their tiny home schools, which you know was a one-room schoolhouse, the specialized equipment that was available, um, the industrial arts equipment, which had been adapted. So simply wasn't replicable back then. And then just the number of people that were trained, just a handful of people in the state, again, talking almost 170 years ago. But now the question is, does this still make sense? And that is, it's a definite moral dilemma. Is this a setting that is now exclusive to students with disabilities and not having opportunities or ample opportunities for interaction with non-disabled peers? Or is this a setting where services are, are concentrated, very rare services um, that otherwise if the student was in a home district, it would be difficult or impossible to get these services. Again, orientation, mobility teachers, teachers of the visually impaired. There are just so few of those people out there. Um, so that, that comes in as a, as a definite question. Um, what, the, what the school did was to collaborate with the public school system on different... Um, events in the auditorium and, and different uh, visitations to schools and getting to meet kids and same age peers. But largely though, again, this was 
a facility where it was students who had disabilities. Let me know in the comments what you think about that. Is it time to look at a different model uh, because we can do things um, now remotely, but how do we do orientation and mobility remotely or uh, teaching students, again, how to navigate using um, a cane, for example. It seems like that would be difficult, if not impossible, to do with remote learning. So how do we, how do we justify maybe having the School for the Blind and the School for the Deaf right now in modern times? A must-read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, a brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. What's the most unique experiences for staff? Well, personally, I'll never forget the first time I was able to go biking with a group of staff and students. Yeah, biking. So the school received a donation of tandem bikes and then also side-by-side three-wheeled bikes. And on warm days in fall, warm days in spring, it wasn't uncommon to have an afternoon where the administrator would say, we're going out. And the FIAD teacher, you know, we're going to go out and we're going to do biking for 50 minutes. And, you know, whoever wants to participate, go for it. And community members would volunteer to be a part of that. It was amazing. Like, I never thought that could happen. So I biked. I loved biking. I biked on a front and back tandem bike um, with a high school student. And he was, um, he was in the back and I was, I was in the front. And it, so basically I would be telling him, okay, we need to, we're going up a hill. We're going to uh, be turning left or I have to slow down because the other bikes in front are slowing down or there's a stop sign. And the students loved, they absolutely loved going out biking, as did the staff. It was remarkable. And especially in October, there was nothing like biking in October after the leaves fell. So a dry October day, when you'd be biking along, the students would say, bike over toward the curb, get over toward the curb. And why was that? Because you'd be biking through the leaves. You'd have this big rustling when you'd go through the, the leaf piles with the bikes. And the students absolutely, absolutely love that. And then we biked one time after a storm and the students could hear uh, roofers putting on new roofs on homes. So this, you know, we're talking about what was happening 
and talked about the storm that had, had gone through a few days before. But that was an in, incredibly uh, wholesome experience and it meant a lot to that school community, building those connections and then also that in vivo experience. It was something I would have never thought coming in that that would be an opportunity. And we also had these huge tractor inner tubes and would be able to slide down the hill and back of school and go toward the track. So we talk about the track. On one side of the track, there were wires that were strung from one side to another, and they were about three foot high. So if you were running track, like running a, a hundred meters, you would grab onto the wire on one side and run to the other side. That would be your guide wire. So again, all of these activities. Something else, um, I was able to work with a high school student and it, this was a student I spoke of earlier who he encountered a heart attack, had a heart attack when he was attending his home district, was running on the track uh, during FIAD class, heart, had a heart attack. Because of that heart attack, um, he had lost some of his vision, his permanent vision loss. So then that was the reason why he was attending the School for the Blind. Uh, he wanted to do something about um, heart attack awareness in schools. Um, as far as learning how to do chest compressions, learning how to use an AD. At that time, the state I live in had a bill that would have required all high school students to learn CPR and then also how to use an AED. And that bill did pass. And this student wanted to then be a, a spokesperson for school, to, to convey to schools the importance of this. Because what he said is, you know, nobody thinks it's going to happen to a middle schooler running on a track. When you think of a heart attack in a school, it's going to be a staff member or a visitor or somebody older. Um, but look at me. So when I'm talking and here I am, you know, 18 years old and someone can listen to me, they can they they acknowledge I'm the same age um, I can represent versus if you're talking about it or, or an adult, they're like, oh, that's, you know, that's kind of an, a, something that happens with adults. It doesn't happen with kids. So we worked together, worked together with his uh, family. They provided photos. We put together a PowerPoint and then recorded a video presentation, which then the American Red Cross uh, uploaded and used. And he was interviewed by the television station that was nearby. It was a big thrill for him. I was very excited for this student. And there was an assembly where all of the school attended and some community members. And at that assembly, I was honored. I was able to speak. He received uh, two awards. And one of the awards was from the National Red Cross. And his, his family was there. Um, it was an amazing time for him. So again, he had produced this video. I worked with him. And he, this video then was was uh, put out about, I think it was a minute, two minutes long, urging students to take um, their 
training serious in high school, right? So if you're a high school student, uh, make sure that you are paying attention and you're getting trained in CPR and first aid and how to use an AED because it can and does save a life. Actually, that student had uh, his life saved by staff who knew CPR. So it was incredibly moving and I felt terrific to be a part of that. When he was done with his speech to everybody in the audience, which uh, just a few minutes, but when he was done, um, there was there was applause, uh, roaring applause, and then um, students, and this was organic, this was amazing, students started to work their way up to the front um, of the stage. And then they put their hands up and this student who had presented about CPR and AEDs, he had, again, he was partially sighted. He would reach down and he would touch the hands then of the, the students. It was, it was amazing to see this, this kind of organic, this appreciation. I mean, and those younger students and his peers looked up to him um, and had so much respect. Uh, he was... Uh, almost uh, this this hero for you know doing this project and, and you know this this well earned recognition from the American Red Cross and from the the news and the media and he was so genuine in why he wanted to do this um, so very special for me to to work with him to uh, help make the connections um, to you know have. Have that, have that opportunity um, for him to, to do all of that stuff. I mean, but wow, wow. Um, something else, uh, the, the campus, right? 170 years old. Well, yeah, the buildings were newer, most of them built in the 60s. Um, but the campus had been on that site for 170 Years. So something very unique was it had just it had always been there. It was part of the community from when the community was small to where it was now. And also the way that it was built was very specific to students who were blind or visually impaired. The gym was round. The the entire gym was round, and up above was a track which was round. It was very intuitive to find your way around this building. There were hallways which would echo. Yeah, they were designed that way. So you would be able to know different parts of the building or different, as you went down a hallway, you could recognize if there would be a break in the hallway, you know, left or right, based upon this way that the, the ceiling and walls had been designed to provide an echo. It was the most amazing thing. My first day, day there, <laughs> the secretary took me on a tour of the, the building and she stopped in a hallway and then she started to say things and she said what do you hear and i'm like i hear an echo and she's like it's designed that way and I'm like oh my so that was amazing yes to to understand this this campus and then the history people would come back who had attended there you know 40 50 years ago they would come back for a few days this kind of this homecoming event it was very big so there was this community effect that wasn't only in the moment it reached back um, decades, if not generations. And that was amazing uh, to experience with that school, that it was 
had this extreme uh, rich uh, fabric of its um, existence. And then there were there were a lot of just a lot of fun things. Uh, and one of one of the things that is is a was an ongoing um, spoof is down the the hallway of students would come down and, and meet with me. It was a long hallway and sometimes if they were were taking a little bit too long to get down the hallway where they stopped off and there's vending machines and things like that, I would play over my phone the sound effect of a cow mooing. Moo, moo. And the the running joke on that is that's the dorm cow because off to the right, a little bit down from where my office was, uh, it went down to the dorms and say, oh, the dorm cow got in the school. It's it's in the hallway right now, so we're going to have to get it back out. And of course, the students knew there wasn't an authentic dorm cow, but it was just this subtle way of, okay, we got to hurry it up a little bit here in the, the hallway. Um, but the dorm cow became legendary. Everybody started to talk about the dorm cow and students started to create additional stories about the, the dorm cow. And it was, I had a terrific boss, absolutely did. And my boss would leave voicemails after a, a meeting or something that I would you know, present. And it wasn't uncommon to uh, receive a, a, a 30 second voicemail of, hey, great job on something you did. And I'm gonna play one right now. Dave, how are you doing? <clears throat> hey, David, just read this letter to the Wisconsin School District. Gotta tell you, Super job, my man. Hey, it's so good. I hope you don't mind. I made a copy um, of it, and I will uh, be happy to redact any names, etc. But just such a good example for us to work from how to correct for the amazing stuff. Really uh, proud to be working with you. Really, really great professional, and uh, just want to let you know that. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. I grew professionally and personally from working at the School for the Blind. I learned new ways to adapt school safety thinking for students with disabilities. I also worked with a remarkable staff. Many of these staff were centerpieces in other districts before they decided to come to the School for the Blind. We had remarkable, our, our mathematics teacher um, was incredibly gifted in working with grants and how to integrate math in, in, with visually impaired students, stuff that was looked at um, by other schools all across the country, our physical education teacher, our therapy department, our rehabilitation services for occupational speech and physical therapy were exceptional. There was an entire wing of the school devoted to early childhood and had outstanding equipment and spaces. One was this huge drum, huge drum that was maybe six feet across. And it had a, a leather uh, covering on it that you know was pulled tight. And I don't know the origins of the drum, except it was very rare and very expensive. And the, the kids loved the drum because obviously you could feel the vibration of the, the drum, either just by being close to it or putting your hand on the top of this drum. So a lot of instruction or therapy activities would kind of happen around this this drum. It was just this really, um, really incredible, cozy type setting, right? Um, 
And then the therapy equipment, there were indoor swings. So if you couldn't swing outside, and, and that was something too. Students who were visually impaired liked swinging. They liked vestibular movement. And so swinging was very popular. And during my time, we also worked to bring swings inside. So ordered swings and we had a larger room that we uh, modified and had swings inside of this room and, and it was very well um, used and, and appreciated by the students. So yeah, all of those all of those things were happening. Um, so what was my you know purpose for today's show? Well, when I took this position, it was recommended uh, by a friend who already worked there who had worked in a traditional K-12 district, and he said, now give it a chance, go down for an interview. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll give it a chance because I trust you. And when I was down there and, and was, was learning, and again, um, it was just so much different than what I expected in a good way. And it was a good match for me, and it was a good match for my skill set. And for student safety, I don't think I could have ever acquired the depth of expertise for students with disabilities had I not had the opportunity to work with staff and students who are blind and visually impaired. It just incredibly heightened my skill set, and especially how to use verbal. Imagine using instruction and how much we base also on using flip charts and visuals. But if, that if that, those tools weren't available to you, how would you still communicate and facilitate all these required safety activities. So absolutely incredible. Um, so I, it was a, a fascinating, uh, wonderful time. I have many friends who still continue to work at the Wisconsin School for the Blind. We're razzing back and forth about that goal ball faculty versus students game and just how good the students were. <laughs> and I think they just waited every year for that to happen because um, they would, they would you know, beat the staff 10 to one or something like that. Uh, they were just thrilled to, to show off their skills. Um, that is really, again, a fascinating game and you can find it on, on YouTube Goalball. So yeah, check out Goalball on YouTube to get an idea of that. So thank you for supporting the Safety Doc and all of the shows that I have out there, you can go back and find an interview I did with Dave Hyde. Dave Hyde is blind, and he works at the School for the Blind. I interviewed Dave a few years ago. That's in one of my earlier shows. And we were talking about safety. What was safety like for Dave as he was growing up? And he shared an experience when he worked at a prison as a counselor. So he said, I was in prison. And I said, whoa. And he said, well, as a counselor. Okay. And when there were drills where they had to exit the building, he had to lift his guide dog up a ladder and onto a roof and then come down a ladder to get out of the building. So that is an amazing story about his experiences with community and vocational safety. Thank you so much. Please consider posting to the comments and take care, everybody. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Remember to check back each week for the latest 
Best and Most Bizarre Practices in Safety Preparation and Crisis Response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Mm-hmm.